You're listening to Your Recovered Life Series, True Stories from the Future, with your host, Courtney Webster. This is Courtney Webster, and this is Your Recovered Life. And today, I am so happy to be joined by Robin Cruz. So I'm going to read a little intro here. Um, Robin is an amazing woman and is the co-author of Making Peace with Your Plate, Eating Disorder Recovery. It's being released on October 15th. I have pre-ordered it. And she is a coach who specializes in inspiring individuals to define their own beauty, worth, and purpose as a payoff to recovery. She was a professional actress and had great success, I will say, from 1992 to 2003. And she found recovery from an eating disorder that had crippled her spirit for over a decade and is now sharing her experience with others. She lives in Colorado with her amazing husband and two fabulous daughters. So welcome, Robin. Thank you. <laughs> Glad to be here and being interviewed by you, Courtney. Great. Well, I just, I was so happy when we bumped into each other that day and then had an amazing phone call and you shared your story with me, which I just think is so... It's your truth, and it's powerful, and I'm really glad you want to talk about it with me, and with everybody, so thanks. Yes, thank you. So the first question I like to ask is, have you found your calling? <laughs> you know, I, I think I have found my calling. I really do. Mm-hmm. What is it? Um, I think my calling is to um, speak my truth um, from my authentic self, and... Um, give people permission to do the same. Kind of gives me goosebumps. <laughs> it took a long time. It took a long time to get there. All right. Well, cool. Well, let's talk about what that is because, you know, I always like to point out that it, it looks like, oh, they've arrived and they figured it out. And the part that I always felt was like, how did that, how did that happen? It looks like it. So I like, I really like to talk to people about like, what happened? So, so basically, I guess a good part to start, you had, you had success as an actress. Mm -hmm. Did that feel like it was your calling when it was happening? You know, I was just thinking that it really did. When I was younger, ever since I was two years old, it was, um, I wanted to perform. I wanted people to hear me. So I always knew that I had this voice, you know, and I really wanted to express that. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was acting. And honestly, it felt very safe. You're saying somebody else's words. You're pretending to be somebody else. So mm-hmm. that really worked for a long time until it didn't anymore, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But it felt like a calling when it was happening. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so then you got sober, right? So so you got into recovery. So why don't you talk about kind of like get getting into recovery and what it started to look like, what your calling started to look or feel like? Okay, great. Um, so 10 years ago now... Um, or a little bit longer, um, I'd been struggling for eat, from an eating disorder for 19 years and it really brought me to my knees. And on several occasions, it wasn't just one, it was several occasions, probably hundreds of times it brought me to my knees actually. And interestingly enough, the only way I could start getting recovery from my eating disorder was to stop drinking alcohol because what I realized is that I was switching the witch for the bitch. So I was putting one down, I was picking one up. So I could never really get my foot in the door of recovery because I was always trying to medicate what was coming up. Um, And so when I finally got recovery 10 years ago, um, that's, that's when I started to search for 
who I was and what I was doing. And um, I will say this. I remember one time I was doing a children's theatre in Spain. It was really a rock bottom for me. And um, I couldn't understand anything that anybody was saying. I really didn't care. I was so in my illness and I was so, um, quite honestly, I was suicidal. That's how painful my disease had become. And I remember running, trying to run off the binge from the night before. And I had this moment of clarity that this was my story. And no matter what I did, I could not change my story. And for a long time in my recovery, that brought me great shame because I really wanted to be somebody that people were proud of or looked up to. I wanted to feel worthwhile and loved. It makes me, it makes me a little sad when I think about that girl back then. Um, and so, and I think that's kind of where the, the acting filled that for a long time. But when I got recovery, um, and now I, I do want to emphasize this, when I got recovery, I gave up my acting. Um, and that does not have to be the case for anybody else that's in recovery. For me, I was, I was 29 and I really didn't know better. I just knew that if I didn't give up my eating disorder, I was going to die. And so I had put a lot of expectations on what I should look like in my acting uh, career. And looking back now, that actually wasn't true, to be honest with you. I got, I got many roles, whether I was binging or not, you know, whether I looked thin or slightly chunky or whatever it was due to the eating disorder. So that was a lie in itself. But it made me feel safe to give it up, to focus on my, to focus on my recovery and later on, I try to find my voice in um, other ways. Um, writing and writing's always been a passion of mine. I started out when I was 14 years old. And when my mum passed, uh, when I was in recovery for some time, I really questioned what my calling was. What is it that um, I can contribute to the world? Because in my, in my illness, um, I had taken a lot. I'd taken a lot from the world and I wanted to know what it was that I could give. And it just kind of came to me in a moment of clarity is to write, write for women. Well, I was pregnant at the time. So I wrote for pregnant women. And out of, out of nowhere, I decided to um, write po poetry for women who were pregnant also. And I... Uh, when my first child, Lily, was born, I took a footprint of her, <laughs> shoved it in ink, shoved a little foot in ink and put it on um, the T-shirts. And I sent them off to a pee in a pod. And literally overnight, I had a successful maternity line that was empowering women. So that was like a step forward to using my voice. And so I wasn't realizing the full calling yet, but I was experimenting. You know, every little step was taking me moving me forward to a calling. And then later on in my recovery, I relapsed with alcohol. I kept my eating disorder. Um, I, had, um, I kept free from eating disorder behavior, but I was not convinced that I was an alcoholic. So I picked up drinking again to medicate the pain of having lost my mom and not dealing with that. And, and uh, I went into treatment and I wrote a lot there. And the clinical director, I remember when I was leaving, she made me promise to keep writing. And so I honored that. 
And I started, I self-published a children's affirmation book called Lovely Dreams when I came out, first came out. And that was a bit closer to my calling. And then I remember going back to Spain and wanting to not own my story. I had this epiphany through starting to write again is that my story is worth something. And although it feels shameful and vulnerable to share it, when I do that, I'm giving a message to everybody else who is struggling or who has suffered from eating disorder or addiction that they too can get full recovery and that you can move through pain. And so I realized the very thing that I was scared to do, which was to tell my truth, was the very thing that I had to do. So that's really what's brought me to that calling in a very long story. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't feel long because I'm going to ask you more questions about it. It's not nearly long enough because that, that still seems like, and then I did this and then I did this. and I did this. So I want to know, like, what did it feel like when it was happening? Because I think that um, it can be confusing. It can be confusing, especially early in recovery, um, even later, to hear what's calling me, what's my thing, what, and sometimes it look, I think we get, you know, compa- being a comparison person, which I think a lot of us can be at times, it looks like everybody else hasn't figured it out. So, you know what I mean? Yeah, I've spent a lot of my life comparing um, people's outsides to my insides. Absolutely. And I, right. think that's, I think that's not just a part of recovery, but a part of being human and being a part of our culture today. Um, you know, I, I think really questioning your calling can be difficult. It, it reminds me of um, how women in our culture get to define their own beautiful. It's like when we're bombarded with things of what we should look like, it never really dawns on us, dawns on us to stop and say, hey, what do I think is beautiful? Because we've been fed since very early on what we should look like. And so we, we don't question it. And I think that that can be the same for our calling, right? We, we're, we have an idea of what it means to be successful now, to be like the, the messages that I've heard in my past. You have to be successful in order to be heard. You have to um, be successful in order to feel loved, which is all BS. But in order to even find the calling, I had to be willing to just let that go. Really, what is it that I want? And what do I want to contribute to this world? If I, if I quiet down the noise of having to be famous, having to be rich, having to be highly successful, what is it that I was born, I'm born with? One thing I am born with is that I have a voice and I have a willingness to use it. I also speak my truth. And in this culture, sometimes that can be really difficult. To speak our truth from a place of non-judgment can be even harder. So, so I had to really narrow it down. And I think finding going through those different professions really helped me. Oh, I like that, but that's not really me. Oh, I like that, but that's still not really me. Oh, I like writing poetry for women, but it's really the message I want to give them. Great. Bit, but not, not everything. Yeah. So as you were following along, so you had the, so the first, it's like if you could look back to like the first part um, where you kind of felt like, well, maybe I'll follow this along. Like what was the first thread? 
Uh, you mean um, when, when you were in recovery? When you were in recovery, and you're kind okay. of like, were you scratching your head, like, okay, well, I'm not acting. That's not going to uh -huh. be it. So, did you have a moment where you're like, well, what is it, or what uh -huh. was that like? Yeah, um, it was actually that was really difficult for me because my whole life up until that point, I was 29 when I got. I uh, got re uh, any real recovery, you know, started real recovery. And I say real, which means I didn't constantly or chronically relapse is what I mean by that. Um, I had identified with being a successful actor. And then I also had friends in that circle who become incredibly famous. And it felt almost like I'd become a failure because I had let it go. So I had already doing something that I knew that was right for me at that time was also incredibly painful because I felt like a failure and I cared about what people thought of me. So that was a difficult one. Yeah. And so for a while, I became a researcher for a, an amazing film writer called uh, Scott Silver and I researched and that kind of got me in touch a little with the writing as, as I said, I had already been writing poetry since I was uh, 14 years old. But it got me inquisitive about um, what, I, what I could do with my own voice, you know? Mm -hmm. But I, I, I did that for a very, very long time. And then I'd always been creative. It's very difficult to turn off that creative bug. What I realize now is we just kind of transform it into, you know, transfer it into different things. Um, and then, you know, the only reason I went into the maternity line, and it was, it was a fairy tale story, that overnight, it was overnight success because I didn't know better. But the truth behind that was I had lost my mom, who was my everything, one month before my first child was born. And she lived in Australia and I lived here in the United States. And I went over to visit her and, and she was on life support. And so I was, I was torn to the, I was, uh, I would say a primal grief. And I, the truth about how that happened to me was that I was on my knees in my bedroom howling to my mom. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was praying to her and feeling such deep sadness and at the same time, great pain because my life had been about taking while my mom had fought for her life and it was all about giving in a very humble way. And I had that moment of, what is it? You tell me, mom, what is it that I have to give to this world? So it was a, it was a very deep, profound moment for me. And it was in that moment, because my mom was a very uh, staunch supporter of, of, of my writing, and she said to me, write, write for women. And that's how I came up. And I was, I was, uh, I was obsessed. I wrote, I wrote, I couldn't stop writing. And uh, I had met with people and they had told me, um, 
don't go into that career. Don't don't go into the retail or the you know manufacturing world of apparel. Do not do that. It's awful and, and it's hard. But when you lose somebody, it's like being told that you have cancer. All of a sudden, life does not seem that difficult because you're there and you're in that moment and you're driven. You're driven with a determination to just live. I just, I just hit everything. I did everything. I was, I was unstoppable. And that's how I got into the maternity. I contacted a lady from a pee in a pod. I never knew that you don't actually do that, that that's not the correct protocol to getting your work in. I was like, I've just sent you some garments and I'm really excited about them and I was wondering if you received them. And she's like, oh, yes, you know, Miss Har- uh, Cruz, we, we have them here. Thank you. And I was like, well, I'm really excited about them. Can you open them? And she's like, well, when I get a moment, I will. Thank you. Goodbye now. I was like that. Five minutes later, she called up and she was like, um, I love them. I want to cry. Can we please order, you know, 3,000 of these? That's how it was. And all of a sudden, I was a designer. Well, I'm not a designer. I don't want to be a designer. Did you have a moment where like, okay, maybe this is my thing? Like, were you kind of, did you have questions along the way? Or? I, I, was wait, I was waiting for, you know, that gut feeling. I know I'm not a designer. That's not who I am. I'm a writer. Those T-shirts and those clothing were all designed to put my words on them. Now, later on, they wanted to buy all these maternity jumpsuits and want me to design things, and it didn't have my writing on it. So there was a real disconnect. That's Now, this is talk about a culture thing. Do you earn more money or do you honour writing? Well, I had a long way to go with my writing before I wrote a book. I had to get on. I, I was told by people... Um, agents that my writing sucked and guess what it did it really did so I got online I taught myself how to write I read every book I could on writing I wrote um, articles for online that gave me five or eight dollars an article that took me hours to write I wrote things about does size matter like I wrote about the most ridiculous things for teenage boys just to teach myself to write. I got rejection after rejection after rejection before I ended up writing this book. Oh, I had no idea about that part. Oh, yeah. So so, how, so you're submitting stuff. So at this point you're like, I, so you're done with, or so what's happening with the, um, with the manufacturing and the maternity stuff? Like, Well, I changed states and I relapsed on alcohol. And I went into treatment and it was at the, um, it was when the recession was hitting. So, um, I could no longer, so you have to have, the manufacturing world is you have to have minimums. You have to, you know, create minimums. Otherwise your manufacturer won't do it or you'll get, uh, it'll cost you too much money to make the product in order to sell it. And so that was kind of happening. Um, Peanut Pod took a hit, large corporations took a hit. They could no longer charge $110 for a T-shirt, which is what they were doing, you know. And um, my my amounts went down and I couldn't sustain that. So it really was a natural progression of ending. So that's really what happened. 
And you were, and, and kind of during this, you were, you were starting to submit things or talking to agents. How, what did that look like? So I went into rehab and I was told not to stop writing. So I came out and I submitted my children's book to an agent. And actually the agent took the book on, but once it was rejected by 20 of the top kids publishers, they rejected me, you know? And I said, well, what about this concept, this book concept? And they were like, literally, this is what they said, "Um, your writing's not up to snuff. That's what I got. So that's when I started, well, I'll have to teach myself to write. Obviously, I'm, I'm not as good as I could be. My grammar sucks. So teach myself. And I got this book called On Writing Well, and I got a grammar book, and then I applied for online stuff, and I taught myself. And then one day, I was overcome by this feeling of having to write a book to tell my story. And I knew what I wanted to write. I needed to have somebody else as well. I needed a co-author who, was, who would specialize in eating disorder recovery because I knew that people wanted to hear my story, that they would benefit from it, which is the inspiration side and the, the identification but I really wanted a book that had the tools as well, like, you know, the inspiration and the education. felt like that was really lacking. So I wrote and I wrote. Tim, my husband, he literally sent me to the room. He said, you stay there and you write. For days, I did the same thing as I did when my mom passed, just started writing, 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 writing. Well, then I had this, like, structure for a book. I knew the woman I wanted to send the book to to be my co-author because she was brilliant. I had met her for an evaluation they wanted to make sure in my rehab that I really was eating disorder behavior free. Turns out I was, but I met my co-author. I met her for like an hour and a half. And I remember thinking, wow, you really have something different to offer, you know? And so I had this structure and I sent it to her and she's like, you know what? I really want to write this book with you. So that's really how it happened. It wasn't, I love, don't you love this kind of overnight success stuff? I know. <laughs> it makes us feel so great about ourselves, doesn't it? I just wrote a book, you know. <laughs> kind of like that's like a model in a magazine. I just threw this on. It never happens like that. Right. Oh, I think it's beautiful. I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm so excited for the book. Can you talk a little bit about the book? Yeah. Um, so Making Peace With Your Play, Eating Disorder Recovery is um, – written really in the way to empower uh, our readers to take the the power away from your eating disorder and and put it back in the rightful place which is to us the one thing i feel like it's really missing about in recovery is the empowering feeling you know that that sense that i I do. I can have control over this. I do have a right to succeed. My addiction doesn't have to kill me. There are things I can do to be fully recovered and not be dictated from my illness. There is. And I want people to know that. I want them to know that full recovery is possible. I want them to know that with no matter how much grief and pain you have gone through, that there is a time in your life you can follow your dreams with not having your eating disorder tapping you on the shoulder. I believe that. Well, that's miraculous because most, I mean, I've suffered with an eating disorder. I mean, since I was 
very young. And, um, and a lot of people that I talk to in, you know, who have recovered from an eating disorder, i.e. they're not, you know, throwing up or laxatives or extra, whatever, it, whatever their behavior was, mm-hmm. they still feel like, you know, it's still, I'm still aware like that there's something there. Like I might not be experiencing disordered eating right now, but I'm aware that it's kind of somehow present. So do you think that that's just like, it can be gone, gone, gone or. Yes, I do. And I'll tell you why, because I experienced that at seven years in recovery from an eating disorder. I felt that, that um, Esper and I call it that little niggling in the back of your mind. So, so you're at that point where you're free from behavior you know that it shouldn't matter anymore, but it kind of does still. So I think that that is where we're lacking the tools that we begin to look it in the eye and go, I see you. You're a liar. You want, you, your voice doesn't do anything for me. It doesn't bring any gain. But in order to do that, you've got to really confront that eating disorder voice, that maybe the lack of self-worth is still not there. For me, that was my part. I still felt a little worthless. And I was still holding on to that feeling that maybe my weight was the way that I looked was, um, was contingent to how people uh, treated me. And so I had to confront that. I had to really look at all the lies that the eating disorder was telling me. You're worthy if you're a hundred and something pounds. You're worthy if um, you look like a supermodel and you don't have wrinkles. You're worthy if you're under 40 years old. You're worthy if, you know, all of that stuff, I had to really look at. And once I looked at it, like looked it right in the eye, like it's kind of like, just say you see a lo- you're walking around the corner and you see a loved one with your, their hand in there in your wallet Mm -hmm. and you spend years not confronting that person, right? But what would happen if you look at that person and you say, you know what, your hand's in my wallet and there's actually never any excuse for that. And that's what you have to do with the eating disorder. You know what, those lies you're telling me aren't true and there's never any excuse to believe that. Does that make sense? I want you to look them in the eye and tell them and really, really identify them. You realize that it's just, it has no control over you anymore. That's powerful. Wow. Well, I think people could extrapolate that. I mean, that image of the wallet, I've never heard that kind of metaphor before, but it feels like it's useful for any, you know, any disease of addiction, right? That like my alcoholism is trying to go into my purse or whatever. Like what, what an because it is. It's a thief. Yeah. It's a thief. And it's, it's, a, and it's a lie. Yeah. It's about questioning. It's about taking your power back and saying, hey, you know what? That's bullshit. That's not true. I mean, how good does that feel? Right? Look, I just sat up straight. I'm oh, like, that's no, right. right. <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's, it's true. It's, it's true. The eating disorder only has power that you give it. Once you take it back, the voice goes, Beep. Wow. That's very cool. 
Very cool. Well, so what would you say? I, and I love how you just, you knew you held on to it. And so I'd, I'd love it if you could share, if somebody is in recovery mm-hmm. and they're thinking, I know there's something I'm supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. but I don't know what it is. What, yeah. Would you have any advice or what would you tell them? I'd say get the book. <laughs> <laughs> right. But besides that, I would say question the facts. Start really, write it down, what, what it is. So are you talking about eating disorder recovery or you're just talking about another level of recovery? I'm talking about, so they've, they've made their commitment to recovery. Uh-huh. And um, so they're, they're sober, they're in recovery there, right? But they have that feeling that like calling, I need to, I want to find my thing. I think there's something I'm supposed to be doing here. And it's not really related. It's not related to, uh-huh. uh, to addiction or whatever, because they're now they're in life, right? They got their yeah. life back. But they're feeling something missing, or maybe they're feeling like, oh, I'm not sure. I just wonder what, what, what you would um, share with them. As far as, like, uh, beginning to find their calling? Oh, I mean, if not being an early recovery is not enough where you allow your senses to come to, there's a something that happens with surrender. And we all know that we have to surrender in order to have recovery. That sense of when we surrender... It's like we're opening ourselves up to more possibilities because we're no longer in that narrow uh, concept of um, the world that we've lived in, which is our addiction. So when we're opening up, there's going to think there's going to be opportunities and things that come to us. I would say, don't hurry it. Don't hurry the process. Really don't. But one thing I would start to do is start questioning what your gifts are, because you know. What makes recovery so much fun is finding what makes recovery worth it. And finding your dreams and your passion makes recovery worth it. And so that's a process of recovery. That's a process of a human being. Be open. Find out what really makes you tick. Stop getting the magazine. Stop listening to people that tell you you should do things. Ask yourself your questions. What is it that I want? What is it that I value? Show me the way. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, let me think if there's anything else. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would want to include? Um, I'm just trying to think about what that would be for me. I guess if I had any message for people in recovery from any addiction, from anything really, I would just say that whether you don't believe it yet, that a full life is possible, whether or not you believe it, it's possible. And if you don't believe it for yourself, believe me and my experience. Robin, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. I just, I think it's beautiful the way you shared your story so honestly. Thank you for being so honest about it. And and I, I know that your words, your book is going to be amazing for people. Your truth is just going to light the way for a lot of people. And you sharing how, what it looked like for you to come to this place where you go, yes, this is my thing. This is what I do. And how you honor that is, is just beautiful. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to do this, Courtney. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye. Bye.
To get in touch with Robin, go to her website, robinandespra.com. That's R-O-B-Y-N and A-N-D, Espra, E-S-P-R-A.com. To get in touch with me, check out my website at yourrecoveredlife.com. And if you have a true story to share, I'd love to hear from you. Send a note to Courtney at yourrecoveredlife.com. And thanks for listening.